Is that better? No? Okay, we're good. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. All right, so uh, it, it, I titled it, Are You Trying to Convert Me? All right? So we're not looking at like a cold, dry doctrine, a theological treaty, a systematic theology in three volumes or something like that. This is something much more uh, intense. It's a living example that's a pattern that God expects us as Christians to follow. And if we look in the Bible, we can find lots of places, especially in Acts, where Paul's uh, life is on display. Uh, Scripture says we're living epistles, read and known of all men, which means the, the lifestyle you live should glorify God and preach. It should give glory to God in such a way that people go, wow, that's what I need to pattern my life after. Well, you know, we're supposed to follow Christ. But didn't Paul say to one of his uh, young men, you know, maybe in the Bible somewhere, follow me as I follow. What is he saying? Model your life after me. So the one great question you could ask today is if people modeled their life after you, what would they look like? If you, could you say to someone, follow me, do exactly what I do? If you can't say that, then maybe we need to make some adjustments and, and get in gear because people need great examples, living epistles in the church that they can model their lives after and, and an, a life of substance that li, that's lived in such a way to have an impact to all around it. All right? I'll, I'll try to hurry, honey. You, you got your call formed up? Okay, good. All right. All right, now here's, let me make one more point. We can be moved in our heart. And we have people that are intuitive feelers. You know, you can, you can tell a great story. Uh, you can tell, uh, you can sing just so and, and be moved at your heart, right? How many of you know that? Or you can, you can hear great teaching and preaching and it stirs your mind to contemplate the, the things of God in such a way that you feel the impact of it. How many of you know what that's like? We're Pentecostal, we do that quite often. But the problem is, is we must go past that to what we live and what we do. So uh, my mom preached a great sermon when I was younger called Stirred But Not Changed. So you can come in this place and be stirred and moved by thoughts and all of these types of things. And at the same time, you know, uh, leave this place and never let it impact your everyday life. Right, so what we want to do is not just uh, orthodoxy, have right beliefs. We want orthopraxy. We want to live out what we say we believe. Right? Well, let's go a little further. Uh, in this passage, I think if we look at the life of Paul, God gives us two things to emulate in Paul's life. The first is his style of evangelism. I'm going to be very particular about uh, what that looks like, and I'm going to, uh, we'll talk about that in a little detail. And also, the second thing, his boldness. If I, I think if anything we need as an apostolic movement today, uh, in the face of this crazy culture of tolerance, is boldness. And I was wishing Brad was here, because I was going to pick on a book he uh, suggested I read. But I'll, I'll get to pick on him later, Brother Titus. <laughs> It does have some good points. I'm being facetious a little. So what is the objective then of the Christian? Of Christians in general, uh, first of all, uh, people say you're just, all you want is numbers. You're trying to convert us. Duh. That's my goal. Why are you always trying to convert people? That's all you want is numbers. There's a, a book out called Unchristian. And one of the things is, is that people aren't invested in people's life. They're always, it looks like they're out for, well, I'm not just for numbers. And I think that's a good critique. 
that we need to hear. Because a lot of things in our movement can be reduced to bean counting and number counting. But clearly, the agenda of every Christian should be to convert people. Not because you want numbers and get to do a thumbs up and look good up in front of stuff. But because they're, they're lost and they need to find Jesus. They need, they, they need to be plucked from hell, as it were, as James says. Something you save like firebrands, plucking them. Do you see them as lost? Then that should be motivation enough. Don't worry about all the numbers. I had 32 in my revival that was filled with the Holy uh, Okay, fine. Whatever. You know, I just rejoice that people are saved, and hopefully people will mature past all that numbers junk. I know that was a little strong. I apologize for it. All right? Uh, people say, look, you apostolics are always trying to convert people uh, away from our faith. You're trying to convert us to apostolic beliefs. Can't you just let Christians be Christians? And can't we all just get along? Can't we all just go along? And you love Jesus and I love Jesus. No. Why? Because if there is a such thing as truth, if there is a such thing as as a right way to approach God, then either we're in it or we better change and get in it. Right? It's not like truth doesn't matter. If I didn't think the apostolic Pentecostal message was true, I wouldn't be here. I would be Presbyterian or whatever else I thought was true. I look at the scripture, and if there's something in the Bible that, that's inconsistent with my belief, guess what? I bow my knees to scripture. So if that's what I believe, then I believe every person in the world should ultimately say, I'm not God, you're God, and what you say goes. If that means you need to leave your faith tradition behind, leave it behind. Come on, let's get on what God's doing and, and, and not uh, be so corrupted with all this cultural tolerance. What's the next reason? Because Jesus told us to. So if you want to know what your agenda is, if you want to know what your objective is, your objective is to find a way to try to convert every person you come in contact with. <laughs> what does that mean, Brother Ken? That means live a life in front of them that's consistent. And when a doorway opens, witness. And more than that, create doorways. All right? And we'll get into that a little later. Jesus says, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. This is our objective. The United Pentecostal Church International has a great slogan, the whole gospel to the whole world. Why would you want to stop somewhere and, and, and not experience all that God has for you? So am I trying to convert you? Absolutely. Right? So when people say, you, you know, Brother Lopez, Sounds like you're saying that I have inadequate belief or something. Well, no, I'm, I, you love Jesus. You love the Bible. I'm just, you know, if there's something, wouldn't you want all God has for you? But you're trying to, are you trying to convert me, Brother Lopez? Absolutely. Absolutely I am. I want you to have everything that God has for you. I'd, I'd hate for you to see, uh, you to walk through the rest of your Christian experience and not have everything that God wants. Why would you want to do that? See, isn't that a better way? You know, of kind of approaching that. So you can kind of push back against some of those things. The objective of Paul in specific in this passage is he's trying uh, to convert King Agrippa. And in Acts 26, 28, uh, he says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But in the Greek, if you look at it, it's, it's almost a question. And it ha- it does, it's connected to time in the Greek a little bit. So it's a little sarcasm. It's not like he's saying, man, I'm just about to get on my knees and talk to what he's saying is, do you, are you really? I mean, almost? You think you can convert me in such a little time? That's what he's saying. But does Paul uh, get intimidated because, you know, Agrippa is mocking him? No, he didn't stop. 
The first person that witnessed to my father and said, you need to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name and get this tongue-talking Holy Ghost, he laughed in their face. Don't be intimidated. Plant seed. Go. Have boldness and look at him and say, listen, I'm just, I mean, I'm telling you what the Bible says here. Go look at it. I'm not making this up. Acts chapter 2, look at it, what it says right here. Later when he was dying of cancer, the, the seed takes root and, and uh, faith is enacted and it springs forth. So you just sow seed. Don't look at their faces, God told the prophet. Don't look at their faces. Just preach the word. Witness. Do your thing and trust God with the results. All right, so uh, Paul is saying, no, I'm not going to uh, stop. My intention is to gain your heart and soul. So uh, if you're in here this morning and you don't have uh, the Holy Ghost, or if you're falling short of the, uh, what God wants for you, make no mistake, I am after you. It's like one preacher said, he said, you know, you got, he says, you know, you people come in and you, and you, and you enjoy our services. If you come in and your, your feet start tapping to the beat, we got you. We have you right then. Why? Because once you experience this, you, I mean, you, just, you can't go back to everything. It's just going to, it's like tasting my wife's cooking. I can't go back. I mean, some of these pasta places I go in and I tolerate. People are like, let's go somewhere. Okay, Maggiano's. Uh, and they're like, it's good pasta. Well, it's okay. You need to come to my house. Taste my baby's cooking, all right? So once you taste God, nothing else uh, makes uh, quite the same uh, impression, all right? So uh, let's look at the background uh, a little bit and, and sit, let this set up the stage. Uh, Paul has already uh, faced four different trials and been proven innocent. Uh, he, he was before the mob. He was before the Sanhedrin. He was before Felix and, and then before Festus. And the, the thing that you see in each one of these trials is that clearly Paul has not done anything wrong. So they accuse him of desecrating the temple, which clearly was proven false. That he, um, he had not defied Israel by disobeying the Mosaic law. So they brought that accusation against him. And he said, no, I have found the ultimate fulfillment of the uh, Mosaic law. And then he says, uh, no, I have not defied Rome by being an insurrection. I'm not trying to throw over the Roman government. So both the Jewish and the Roman courts have attested, guess what? We have found nothing wrong that Paul has done. And yet he's still in prison. Right? What, does that, what does that show us? Paul was blameless. And even though he was in prison, he had not done anything wrong. What does that mean? Let people talk. People are always going to talk. Right? And there's a, a, a great little book out called Unchristian. Um, it has some good things in there. But what, what this book, how many of you have read it? Unchristian. Save your money. I, I probably shouldn't say. All right, there's, about, there's some good things in there. Understanding the cultural significance of our time and how people relate to each other, that is actually fabulous. It's worth mining the book for that. But the whole point of the book is people are calling us unchristian because, you know, of inconsistency in lifestyle and all these other types of things. We, we are, look unchristian to them. And the problem is, is it ignores two things. First, the culture of tolerance. Anytime you stand up and say this is true, no one's going to like you. So you can't run your church by polls. 
You have to run your, your church by the word of God and let the chips fall where they may. They can do whatever they want to do. Throw us in prison, do whatever they want to do. Pass hate crimes legislation, throw us in jail for, for preaching against homosexuality. We don't hate homosexuals. If we hated them, we'd be silent and let them go to hell. We love them enough to tell them the truth. And it's not out of a mean spirit or some type of hatred and looking down your nose at people. No, we want them to be saved. Because there is a such place as uh, called, uh, hell, hell. There is called hell. And if you love people, you'll do your best to pull them from them. All right? Uh, uh, well, let's see. Enough, enough about unchristian. So he was blameless. So let people talk about you, but let it be lies. Don't you stand in the way of your own witness. So if they're going to say something, they're, they're a hothead. They're always, you know, doing this or that. All right, let them talk. They're always going to talk. But just don't let it be true. Don't you shoot your mouth off at work and ruin your testimony and your witness. Don't you live an inconsistent lifestyle that uh, shows that you don't have character because you can be dishonest in business. Don't you undermine your witness. Let them talk. They're always going to talk. But Paul stood vindicated in the eyes of people. Why? Because he had a good report within and without. So let that testify to who you are. And I think that is the basic point of unchristian, even though he misreads tons of stuff. Okay. All right, well, well let's, then let's talk about of cowards and conspirators then. If Paul is still a prisoner because basically the rulers did not have the courage to release him. So you have Festus and then, uh, or Felix first and then later Festus. And both, both of them fear the, the Jewish people so much that they refuse to release him. So here's how it goes. They say, I uh, want to kill this guy. You want, you want to have a good, good rule here? We can make it very hot for you. And you're here, uh, basically uh, appointed by Rome, and if you don't do well, they will take your position. So you better do what we want and make it hot for this preacher, or uh, basically we can wreck your rule. Does that sound familiar? We elected you to a position. And unless you pass these types of legislation, we can vote you out of office. Make no mistake, if your hope is ultimately in government, you're in trouble. That's the problem with the whole of the evangelical uh, movement. They think somehow that uh, they're going to sway politics and all of a sudden the doors are going to open, the red carpet's going to roll out and everybody's going to say the gospel is great. That's not where our hope is, folks. People are elected to positions because of the whim of, of, the, of the crowd. So don't expect them to do what's right. They're going to do what people elect them to do. And when they get political pressure put on them, that can be a good thing because we can put political pressure on them. And by the way, Genesis, I, I'm not against involvement in government. Genesis 1, if you do a study of it, God said, or Genesis 2, rather, did I say 1? 2. It, say, it shows where God uh, makes a covenant with Adam and Eve and says, you're supposed to affect all of existence, have dominion over all my creation. And you, through your family and truth, should shape everything in the world around you. Every aspect of life. That's your job. That means it's our job. So we're supposed to affect not just individuals, but also the society around us. You're salt, right? You're like, I know people get nervous when I say things like this. Especially for some reason, your gener- uh, the younger generation. 
I should say your generation, this generation, uh, my generation. They get, oh, we don't want separation of church and state. We've got all this political garbage that's been dumped in our uh, mind and heart and spirit from uh, our education system. When, in fact, God requires us. That's why he spends uh, lots of the Old, uh, Old Testament, the wisdom books of the Old Testament, speak to every aspect of life. Don't you think God did that on purpose? So why, was, why should we let secularism and the enemy shape all of existence? Get involved. Press people to do what's right. Make it hard for them. Tell them, say, look, I'm watching you. I've sent little emails. With I'm watching how you're voting on this issue. I will remember you come election time. Do that. I think that's great. But if that's the end, if that's all there is, then you're missing the boat. Because sometimes your job is just to stand up and witness against uh, the powers that be. Like in Rome, when Paul says, you know, stand up and be a witness, a martyrios, witness against the society, witness against the culture. That's what God calls us to do. Can Paul control his circumstances? Not all of them, but he can stand up and be a strong witness. And God can use that placement as a platform, even his arrest. Can God give us platforms? Yes, but not always like he, we think they should be. We think we're going to be invited in the Oval Office. Sit across the table, pass some wonderful legislation. Whatever. If that happens, hallelujah. If not, God can bring revival another way. God can give us spheres of influence through another way, like he did with Paul, arresting him, putting him in prison when he was falsely accused and should not be there. Can God trust you with that? Can God trust me with that? Mm. Two years of waiting when you know you're in the right. And yet God creates this moment where he can share the gospel. Right? Well, let's go a little further. Uh, Paul uh, realizes that if, if you do a little study, he says, hey, how about we, uh, how about we shift you to Jerusalem? You can't get... Uh, I know you have to leave, so if you have to leave, thank you for being here this morning. Seem great. This room is All right? Um, he ends up saying, um, look, I... You know, I, I got, I'm under political pressure. I'm being blackmailed by these Jewish leaders. I can't help you. So how about I send you to Jerusalem? That sounds good, right? You can get justice there. And Paul's like, uh-huh. And this is basically what he wanted to ha- the Jewish people wanted to happen. See, they could, when he was being escorted, they could assassinate Paul. Or control the court in Jerusalem and kill him. So what does Paul do? Ultimately, he says, if I can't get justice here, I need to appeal to Caesar. But more than that, Paul understands his placement in the will of God. Because God says you have to go to Rome. And he says, okay, I'm trying to discern what to do in these circumstances. If I've heard from God and if I know the will of God, then what I can do is order my actions in such a way that I operate with understanding. If God wants me to go to Rome and it looks like there's a possibility of something happening then I need to align myself with the will of God. So I think Paul is clearly saying, I'm going to the place that God has designed me to go. Because if I go someplace where men want me to go, I can get in trouble. Right? How many of you see that? That's pretty straightforward. Right? So when you're facing a, a question, ask yourself, what has God told me to do? What's the will of God for my life? And if you align yourself with the will of God, you will get the provision of God and the protection of God. It's when we step outside of the will of God and kind of operate on our own. Well, maybe I can go and manipulate these circumstances. God tells Paul, no, don't go there. He wants to go somewhere else. He says, don't go there. 
because if you walk in the will of God, then in Macedonia, revival follows. Why? Because protection and provision happens in the will of God. So make sure you're in the will of God, all right? doesn't have to be crazy, you know, waiting for a message in your Cheerios or something. But just, you know, have, trust the will of God when he speaks into your life. Follow his word and you will be fine. All right, so Paul appeals to Rome and Festus goes, okay, you have appealed to Rome, now I got this problem. Because if I, have to, if I have to send you to Rome, then my job is to write a letter and tell them, okay, here's this guy that's going to Rome, here's what's against him. And the problem is, is he says, I can't find any of these accusations that they're making that carries water. They're lying. I thought there was going to be a problem. I thought I could find something wrong. But in, in fact, I can't find one thing that uh, Paul's guilty of. But fortunately for Festus, uh, the, the man that appoints him, King Herod Agrippa, comes and says, I'm going to stop by and see you and make a connection. You know, kind of come, make a personal connection. You've been appointed. Let's mix. Let's... And then he says, ah, here's the guy who's half Jewish. And evidently, this is a theological matter uh, for Jewish people because I don't understand all about this resurrected dead man. Maybe he can make sense of this theology because I can't. That's not my field. I don't understand all this Jewish stuff. So finally, he says, I found the right person to help me with the case. And he's thinking, perhaps, uh, you know, Agrippa can help him with his problem. So they get together, they have a brainstorming session, and finally he looks at him and he says, here's what happens. They wanted to kill him, all of the things that happened. And he says, okay, you know, you've piqued my interest, he said, so let's, uh, let's then take a look at uh, his case. So 25.14 says, And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's case unto the king, saying, There is a certain uh, man left in bonds by Felix. And then he begins to say, Okay, the right time's come. I've warmed you up long enough. Now I can hand you this uh, issue that's like a landmine. I'm too scared to deal with. All right? So then uh, Festus says, Okay, you've piqued my interest enough uh, in Rome or in Rome, in uh, Paul, so now I will hear it as well. So he he shows that he's been blackmailed, and he's kind of getting himself off the hook. So he's warming Agrippa up, and then because he doesn't have enough courage to look at the Jewish people and say, he's innocent. Because what would have happened, the Jews would have revolted. His job is to put down uh, riots, and he would have been in trouble. So he's kind of in a political quagmire. So he looks at maybe, hopefully this guy can make sense of it and get him off the hook is what he's trying to do. He even misrepresents himself a few times. All right? So, uh, yes. So let's, let, how much time do I have left? Ten minutes. Oh, boy. All right? So the, uh, he's, he says, I've inherited this problem. It's not mine. Uh, he, he knows that the Jewish people want him dead. Uh, and to make matters worse, then Paul appeals to Rome, which he says, okay, now I, I'm on, I, there's nothing I can do. I have to send him to Rome. And if I send him without any accusation or being able to make any trial, they're going to look at me in, in askance and say, why didn't you deal with that? And so he's looking for a way politically to get off the hook. He says the Jews had certain questions against him of their own religion and of one Jesus who was dead, who Paul affirmed to be alive. Right, so he says, okay, there's no criminal activity here. It looks like it's a matter of this theology. I don't understand this. I don't understand all this Messiah stuff. And, and he's trapped then by his ignorance. So what he does is he turns to Agrippa because Agri- Agrippa uh, knows uh, the religion of the Jews and can, he thinks, uh, sort this out much more clearly. 
right, let's get past that. All right. All right, so he needs to send him to Rome. So I will say this, that at the end of the day, um, he tells the story, and Agrippa says, you know what, this is intriguing. You know, let me look at this guy too. Learn a little bit about this. You know, later Paul's going to say, none of this was done in a corner. You know. And by the way, Agrippa, you know the prophet. Don't you believe the prophet? And so there's a lot of things in the heart of uh, Agrippa that preps him for hearing the message of Paul. And it's interesting that this one preacher in the presence of rulers and a king is the center of attention. I believe God will create in our life if we can trust him. But Paul has had to trust God for two years in a prison to get, what, to this one point? Well, no, he wrote to the churches, done all sorts of good work, ministered to people from prison. But this was a great opportunity for Paul. And I think God can steer our lives in wonderful ways if we'll trust him. But the scripture says, and on that next day when uh, Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp, uh, so you have this great entourage of people, you have the, everybody there decked out in their, their best. If you look at the passage, it's this procession. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's flair. And it's, it's like, how can we, you know, everybody, they're dressed to the nines. and They're having this, it's like being invited to the White House. Everybody's there they're in their regalia. Everybody's going to look sharp. And, and so they come in dressed to the nines, and then they have this unimposing preacher. When they'd entered the place of hearing the auditorium with the chief priest, the principal men of the city, everybody's there. Festus commands Paul uh, to be brought forth. So if we look at tradition, what it says about uh, historically about Paul is that his presence was uh, not very imposing. It says that he was uh, walks a little bandy-legged. They say he was bald, bald-headed and he couldn't see very well. So imagine the contrast. Luke is doing this on purpose. He's showing you the contrast between these people that have the glit and the glamour and everything, they're, they're everything that everybody in the culture wants to be. Power, position, money, everything. And then they bring in this preacher in chains. And if you look at what he's... What Luke is doing, he's saying uh, Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus were the fools putting on a big show, but it's Paul who stands as the hero of the scene. Why? Because it's not about the... If you look at the weight of eternity, who has power? Who has position? Who has real presence? And here they are standing before the man who has everything that they need. Um, so, yeah, we don't have time to read all that. Uh, so if you look at the passage, Paul is saying, uh, I, look, he didn't have to show up to the hearing. He could have stayed away. He said, look, according to Roman law, I've already been tried. You can't drag me in now, probably. You've been dragged in. But what did Paul do? Did he even try to resist? No, because he realized here's a great opportunity to witness. So he could have said, no, I, I, I don't want to be a part of this. But he didn't even try. Why? Because it was another platform for him to declare to someone uh, the message of Christ. And he knew, I'm going to get a chance to tell my testimony 
and what Jesus Christ did in my life. The, pl- the place is jammed full of all sorts of people, people with uh, position and power, and you should never be intimidated. Why? Because you have the answer. You have exactly what they need. And sometimes when we walk into places of uh, education or, or politics or or people with wealth, sometimes we soft-toe it a little bit. But what you need to do is you need to grab the boldness of Paul and say, no, I, have exa- I know you have stuff. I know you have position and power in this world, but I have what you really need. So if nothing else should happen to us, we should realize who we are and what we have in our hands. And we don't have to be crass and look down our nose at them, but you knew- do need to look them in the eyes. Thank you, honey. And say, uh, you have, I have exactly uh, what you need to hear. Uh, so uh, Paul's given a chance to defend himself. And Paul answers. He says, he uh, says, you, stretches forth his hand. And he begins to give an- answers. This is what Paul says. He, he says, I'm going to give you a reason of the hope that lies within me. That's what, he, uh, what Peter meant in 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That means you shouldn't be waiting on the preacher to do it. You shouldn't be a concordance junkie. You should have something committed in your heart and mind so when people ask, you can defend your faith. And that's not the job of the Bible teacher or just the young adults uh, somehow teaching squad up here. It's your job to look someone in the eye and be able to say, no, let's go to this scripture. And be able to write then, God trusts you with a moment because uh, he can and you prepared yourself. Right? So uh, convert them. Paul says be instant in season and out of season. That means you have to be willing uh, to give an answer. Not only willing, you have to be equipped. Right? So what are you saying today, Brother Kilman? You need to think like Jesus and Paul. One of the characteristics of a great evangelist is being able to take your circumstances, whatever they are, and turn them into an opportunity to witness Christ. So Paul could have sulked. He could have said, no, I'm too busy. He could have said a lot of things. But instead, what he says is, I'm going to take this moment to witness to who Christ is and what he's done in my life. What does he do? He tells a personal testimony. He steps forward. I... He says, look, I understand there are people against me. You think they were bad. Let me tell you how bad I was. They're resisting me and trying to kill me and you know, ask for my life. But I killed Christians. If, if, and he says, if you drew them in here, and if they would testify, they would tell you, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was one of the, the biggest, the brightest on the scene. And yet, as I was going to do, the, do what I thought was the will of God, I was on the road to Damascus, and a great light shined. And said, Paul, or Saul, rather, Saul, Saul, why persecute me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Why this question? He said, I am Jesus. You know that. Then he turns to Agrippa and he says, He called me. He saved me. So how could I resist doing the will of the Lord? Then he points to the Old Testament. He says, This is the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel, this is the hope of all the prophets. I'm in, what is he saying? I'm in consistency with the Jewish religion. They're the ones that are out of sorts with their Messiah. You know this because none of this was done in a corner. You know the stories of Jesus being resurrected. Not by one, 
but by uh, two, the ladies at the tomb, yes. And then the 12 disciples, yes. And then 500 at one time. And you know some of them have already died for that belief. People will die for a lie, like slamming to the Twin Towers because they believe they're going to go to heaven and get so many versions of it. But people don't die for what they know to be a lie. And these people died saying, I know he was resurrected because I saw him. And so he looks at him and says, how could I not be faithful? How could I? You know all of these things. And you know that I'm telling you the things that are the truth. So what does he, and, but he looks at him finally, he says, Paul, much learning has made you mad. So what does Paul do? Does he react? Oh, you can't call me that. But you don't react. He says very carefully, and you need to handle people appropriately. Be kind and yet be pointed. Look them in the eye. Tell your testimony. Tell what God has done in your life. And when they call you crazy, say like Paul did. He says, I'm, I'm sober. I'm at my right mind. He said, and, and you're trying, are you trying to persuade me in such a little time to be a Christian? And Paul very candidly looks him in the eye and says, to paraphrase, yes, I'm after you. He says, I wish that everyone was like me, so persuaded. And then he says, kind of tongue-in-cheek, to bring a little levity, except without these chains. But what was he doing? He was very tactfully handling the situation, sharing his testimony, and being bold and witness. How many minutes do I have, baby? Am I done? Oh, I'm going to take two minutes. My dad was at a restaurant, and there was a, a minister, I won't say the uh, denomination, that was witnessing to a young couple. And he was saying to the young guy, the guy was saying, I, you know, I was down praying, and I spoke in tongues. You know, I was speaking another language. And the minister was saying, no, no, that's not for us today. I was only in the Bible times. I know you, you think you did, but you really didn't do that. And my dad starts listening. My dad has buckets of boldness. And he says, uh, you know, Lord, should I go over there? My mom's trying to distract him. And he said, God asked him a question, and I think it's a profound question. A question that I'm going to ask this class. He said, what would Paul do? What would Peter do? So my dad gets up and he goes over. He says to the man, very tactfully, may I talk to this couple? I'm a minister to them. Immediately thinking he's going to affirm everything. He said, oh yeah, absolutely. And he says, young man, I know what you're talking about. It's in the book of Acts. I've had that experience myself. And of course the minister, the minister blows up just ugly, and starts attacking my father, telling him he was damned to hell. And my dad says, now listen, I'm not going to say that about you because you may repent. You may get baptized in Jesus' name. You may get this Holy Ghost. I'm not going to say that about you. And he said, you know, the Bible says not to be a hearer of the word only, but a doer also. He said, are you a doer of the word? The guy says, yeah, I'm a doer of the word. He said, well, then why don't you let me baptize you in Jesus' name? Like it says, Peter on the day of Pentecost. Be a doer of the word. The man, what happened? is God created a moment where my dad had to keep character and not respond in anger and fight back. But clearly, in the eyes of this couple, God differentiated this man who said he was a man of God and who the man of God was. So God will give you opportunities. Don't react. Be kind. Be pointed. Share the truth in love. In a very, and you can do that in a very pointed way. Very bold. And, and at the same time, you can be...
And at the end of it, uh, my father was able to tell that young couple, you can go to Westside Apostolic, Brother Winter's church over there, hooked them up with a great apostolic church. But they live very, very close to and said, you can go right there. They can tell you exactly. And on the way out, the cashier looked at my father and said, I'm a blank, you know, same as the preacher denomination. But I'm going to tell you, what he didn't know was not blank. And I'm sorry that happened. Can God give us moments? Can he trust us to not react? But can he also trust us to be bold, to step in and say, ask yourself, what would Paul do? What would Peter do? Would you stand? Lord, we want to be an effective witness. I pray that you would give us the boldness of Paul, that you would give us the boldness of the apostles who were on fire with this message, who understood that everybody they met needed what they had. Help us to see that reality and trust that you will lead us and guide us. Help us to equip ourselves to do the hard work of turning off entertainment long enough to put things in our heart and our spirit by which we can speak your truth into people's lives. I pray this Christmas season you would give us boldness to speak in love to our family, to find not only the opportunities that are open, but to create opportunities. Lord, you said uh, we're as deceivers and yet true. Help us to be wise. Help us to work situations toward a conversation about you. And we know, Lord, this is your will because everybody needs the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Have a good week.